Why do Russians have absolutely the best conspiracy theories? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. Hello, so I'm recording this on Saturday the 23rd of December, a little bit earlier than my usual cycle, but, uh, well, for fairly obvious reasons. This is before the, I was going to say non-orthodox, maybe that's unorthodox Christmas of 25th of December. And although I expect there will be one more podcast this year, focusing on kind of big, important stuff, politics, the future election and such like, this time I wanted to indulge myself a bit and address, as I said, the fact that Russia has the best conspiracy theories. Not just the most batshit crazy, but also often the most richly textured, densely layered. And with it, a whole variety of people who spread, if not conspiracy theories, but definitely do their bit to to push the wagon. What am I talking about? The Russian word for cart or wagon, telega, also in, in slang means falsehoods ranging from carefully constructed conspiracy theories all the way through to just simple lies through to fairy tales and yeah, this has been used much more generally I mean to, to roll the cart on someone for example is to denounce them and certainly was back in the day possibly with slander so yes lots of lots of all kinds of ornate even baroque carts abound in Russia today In his sometimes slightly stream-of-consciousness but truly excellent book, Plots Against Russia, Elliot Borenstein writes, for example, about Vyacheslav Surkov, who was, after all, the, the architect of Russia's fake theatrical democracy. Surkov is notorious for dismissing facts and viewing reality as an easily manipulated media construct, for weaponizing postmodern theory as propaganda. The messages that such a simulacrum were to convey may or may not have reached their target audience. But it was the meta-message that met with great success. We are all subject to media manipulation, and every expressed motive probably hides the hidden real one. And I think this is of importance to much, much more than just simply the way that the Kremlin has tried to not just use but abuse the media space to create this sense that uh, no one really knows anything. This notion of ever deeper layers of truth, that there's always something more to be learned, some new plot twist, was obviously very artfully exploited by Surkov, but certainly didn't begin with him. So rather than once again trudge through the familiar byways of the war, the election campaign, repression and response and so forth, what I want to do today is dig a little into precisely not just how Russia successfully weaponizes conspiracy theories as a tool of statecraft, I'll touch on that, but also why it is also so susceptible, not even just susceptible, 
Almost it feels sometimes as if there is a, a kind of a pride in a cottage industry for creating all sorts of bizarre ways of understanding the world. Now, all of this was triggered by the story that in mid-December, the St. Petersburg academic journal Legal Science, History and Modernity, published a perplexingly bizarre and bizarrely perplexing article, The Russian Family as the Basis of Russian National Statehood. This article actually, well, by heavens, it's a doozy. Now, the journal itself is published by the Foundation for Support of Science and Education in the Area of Law Enforcement Activities University. And the article's authors include State Duma Deputy Igor Anansky, a retired FSB general, and a senior researcher at the St. Petersburg Law Institute, who wouldn't seem to be the kind of people to perpetrate an involved practical joke. Nonetheless, sandwiched between a slightly dull but worthy article on agencies and troops of law and order in ensuring state and public security in the 19th century, and a phenomenally stultifying, a brief overview of changes in Russian legislation in the field of providing military personnel, brackets, employees, close brackets, of the National Guard, troops of the Russian Federation and their family members with living quarters and other forms of such provision. And here I have to take a deep breath. We have this particular beauty. Let me start just by reading you the summary and the keywords. The summary. Russia includes about 200 tribes and peoples. Russians in Russia are the state-forming people. Almost all the greatness of Russia was created by Russians in unity with other peoples of our fatherland. In modern conditions, the Russian population is declining, which threatens the existence of Russia itself. The family in Russia has become an object of destruction in a hybrid war. The United States and the collective West have formulated the political goals of killing Russians. The same policy is promoted by some politicians and Russian foreign agents. The editors do not entirely agree with the position of the authors set out in this article. Keywords. Man is the creation of God. God's covenant is be fruitful and multiply. The role of Russians in the creation of the empire. The role of the family in the state. Cult of women in Russia. Vatican. USA, Europe, about the destruction of Russians. Feminism as a form of Satanism. Family destruction, prostitution, abortions. Now, I mean, first of all, uh, let's, let's note three things. One is that, again, this mention of hybrid war. You know, there's still too often a notion that hybrid war is, is this awful thing that the Russians do to us. We mustn't forget that, the, as far as the Russians are concerned, hybrid war was an invention of the West used against them. Secondly, um, I do rather like that um, coy point about the editors. Do not entirely agree with the position. Um, that's almost English in its use of understatement. And thirdly, as regards keywords, by heavens, I clearly have been getting uh, you know how to do keywords for articles completely wrong based on this. Anyway, look, this already I would su su suggest sounds a bit um, out there, but but trust me, the summary really failed to do it justice. After all. The article asserts that the world is populated by two human breeds. The proper ones, Russians, needless to say, foremost amongst them, but also Jews and Muslims, and the improper, debauched and destructive ones that, well, we pr prim primarily see in the West. And the um, collective Wests 
sort of hatred for Russians is because the, the good earthly people, the Russians, were created in the image of God, and the beast people, or non-humans, who may look the same, but were actually created from the dust of the earth using cosmic genetic technologies. I kid you not. So while earthly people, quote, value peace, family, children, and the cult of the mother woman, as, as we indeed have seen in, in Ukraine and Chechnya and Syria and so forth, they, oh, I suppose uh, we, I should say, given that I am obviously one of the, uh, the, the, the non-people, are genetically modified beings, biological artificial intelligences who exalt war, murder, terror, paedophilia, revolutions, cannibalism and drug addiction. I, I really, so obviously, sort of thinking ahead for Christmas, I really should embrace, obviously, my, my, my cannibalistic side. Now, look, the central argument, the point that the, the family is essentially a, a vital state asset, shall we say, focuses on this point about how apparently the Russians have stopped procreating at the same rate. Now, some people would advance explanations such as the fact that this tends to happen to any society that becomes more prosperous, sees child mortality fall and such like. Oh, but no, they would be misled sheeple. It's actually because Russians have been corrupted by Western culture. Quote, Liberalism is the transformation of a person into an animal that's focused solely on satisfying its basic instincts, the most desired of which is sex. Unquote. In particular, in apparently the 1990s, which was admittedly a pretty horrible decade, Russian women became followers of the demoness Lilith, mother of the beast people, and as a result they commit all sorts of depraved practices that uh, cause cancer and worship Satan, which I you know, imagine is regarded as a bad thing. Indeed, the first feminist was the demoness Lilith. Look, who's behind this, this terrible conspiracy? Yes, of course, it's aliens. Extraterrestrials living among us, running secret conspiracies to take control of the Earth, which require eliminating the Russians and morally destroying women. To this end, their, their secret council has suborned human men to their cause by instilling lust in them. Obviously, there, there was no lust before that point. In due course, what they're going to do is they're going to take over and the Earth will be suborned into their reptilian space civilization. Oh, and I mean, there, there is more, so, so much more. But I do think that that gives you a flavour of this particular stupidity soup. And look, it's, a, for a start, amazing to find it in the pages of what looks otherwise to be a rather serious, sober, if not particularly exciting, academic journal. I mean, the, the peer review process has rarely broken down, I would suggest, quite as d destructively as that. And maybe it comes down precisely to the fact that the, the authors were sufficiently important that no one was going to tell them, this is lunacy, why don't you just simply scrawl this on the walls of public bathrooms rather than trying to get it inside a journal? So, you know, who knows quite how it was shepherded into the public light. But nonetheless, I mean, I think that although this is a particularly extreme example, firstly, some of the themes are worth bringing up. This notion that, in fact, you know, Russia is the, the subject of some kind of deep conspiratorial cultural attack is something that I'll, I'll be coming to later in the podcast. 
But more generally, look, you know, one can talk about the kind of weaponized conspiracy theories that are have been rather peddled by successive regimes, Tsarist, Soviet and modern, ranging from the anti-Semitic protocols of the elders of Zion, which we're not quite sure how it appears, but does seem to have had a certain connection with the Akhrana, the, the, the Russian political police, through to the KGB's Operation Denver, which sought to spread the idea that AIDS was actually the product of American biowarfare experiments, to today's claims, indeed, that American biowarfare labs are to be found in Ukraine and Georgia. But I, as I said, I do want to go beyond this. And also, I want to recognise that, in fact, we're going to be talking about more than just conspiracy theories. Um, or rather, I want to broaden the concept of conspiracy theories into the kind of a, a wider, more expansive sense of the wagon, the cart, to, shall I say, a sort of wider notion of what we could almost call managed falsehoods or managed legends based on, firstly, a belief that there is a, a set of deeper arcane truths that are not known to most. Secondly, a sense that knowledge is deployed as a tool or more often even actually as a weapon. And thirdly, precisely, that there are cabals and cons conspiracies below and beyond what is generally assumed. So, yes, I'm going to be talking about conspiracy theories, but I'm going to be broadening it out rather more. And, of course... These things do not just sort of bubble up necessarily sort of uh, from the, the subconscious or wherever. Often they are carefully created to be career makers. I mean, one can obviously look at, for example, the whole denunciations under Stalin, in which precisely people did roll the cart over many others, construct narratives of other people being wreckers, saboteurs, foreign agents and the like. And we know about the big show trials, which again created the, these entirely false narratives. But actually, that was also being played out within society all the time, on, 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 a, on a petty level, as, as people in some ways tried to hijack the murder machine of the state in order, firstly, to keep themselves safe, but also sometimes to get rid of a rival at work, get someone um, you know, arrested so that their property could, could be taken over. All kinds of different sort of personal and, and, and petty motivations behind it. But more, more broadly, again, the idea of successfully creating these, these managed legends as, as a career builder. I mean, for me, one of the, one of the best examples was, was Trofim Lysenko. In 1948, at a session of the Lenin All-Union Academy of Agricultural Sciences, of course, this chap Lysenko declares that genetics is a fascist doctrine practiced by the worshippers of Wall Street. Now, instead, he advocates what's called maturianism. And the idea is that, in fact, all acquired characteristics, in this case of plants, can actually be inherited but also, more to the point, can be changed. And look, you know, there's obvious parallels here in the sort of nature versus nurture dimension, which fits into sort of Marxism, Leninism. The idea that there is a kind of a perfectibility to humanity that absolutely can outgrow the um, sort of external constraints. But the point is, Lysenko claimed that with his methods, you could actually totally convert plants from one thing to another. Spring wheat could become winter wheat, for example. 
he was basically offering magic beans. And the Stalinist state was buying because basically this seemed to offer a neat, easy, quick way to being able to actually massively expand agricultural production. Of course, it was what I think in technical terms will be regarded as bollocks. It was a disastrous dead end. But the point is, until Stalin's death in 1953, Lysenko dominated and some would say ruined Soviet biology research, holding it back for years, and in, in the process costing the state billions of rubles through agricultural losses. But the point is, he managed to construct not just a, a simple lie, hey, this theory works, but also built a whole conspiracy theory around it in that he embedded it within the political. He actually sort of used, in effect, politics as a metaphor for biology, which you know, doesn't actually work, I'm afraid, and sold that effectively. Now, today, what we have are the sort of serried ranks of toxic TV pundits happy to claim that the United States is weaponizing mosquitoes to spread diseases amongst Russian troops in Ukraine, or that the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who I'd never really thought in these terms, was apparently seeking to imitate Adolf Hitler. And, and these people's prosperity apparently depends on their capacity to create and sustain lies, myths and conspiracy theories that suit the state. And the same is true of pseudo-academics like Alexander Dugin, who has, I mean, amongst other things, for example, this is a guy who, who has spun theories about Atlantis and the, the mythical ancient realm of Hyperborea, not as a metaphor, not in a sort of men are from Mars, women are from Venus way, but in the sense that actually he is asserting that these genuinely existed, and from that he can build a conspiracy theory-like basis for his claim not only to a, a Russian birthright to an empire spanning Dublin to Vladivostok, but more generally because he presents Russians as the, the modern reincarnation of the ancient Hyperboreans, this becomes the rationale for conflict with the United States, because they are, of course, the descendants of Atlantis. So nothing to do with the apparent contradictions between worldviews, position in, uh, on the, the global order and that kind of thing. No, no, it's all about this mystic roots of the respective nations. So because this is such a you know, strong factor we see in, in today's political narratives, what I want to do is, is talk about Russians' own propensity to generate and believe conspiracy theories, even when you'd think they'd know better. Because the thing is, a lot of these conspiracy theories are not conveniently related to distant times or distant places. It's a lot easier, to, frankly, to believe that, I don't know, aliens built the pyramids or or indeed nuked Moscow. Nuked Moscow? Hmm. The conventional wisdom is that in 1812, when Napoleon took Moscow, the Russians burned it precisely to deprive Napoleon of that. Ah, but that's, that's far too easy. Now, according to one Alexei Kungurov of Nizhny Tagil, this is certainly not the case. And he adduces the fact that, as far as he's concerned, Russia has suspiciously young forests around Moscow. You know, supposedly it's older, to, it's, it's, sorry, it's difficult to find trees that are older than, say, oh, about 200 years. Furthermore, in 1816, the historiography sort of 
calls this the, the year without summer. Certainly in Western Europe and North America, there was an unusually cold weather, still something like a, you know, a record. And this led to obviously catastrophic crop failures and the like. And this also excerpts from apparently, though this is very, very questionable, a Napoleonic army lieutenant, Charles Artois, which was found conveniently enough by a Moscow official when he um, acquired an estate, shall we say, in the south of France. And in this diary, it says that when the troops occupied Moscow, a dazzling second sun flashed above it, which hung in the sky for no more than five seconds, but the heat from which was enough to ignite the city. And then, you know, he goes on to describe the when, when the French retreated from Russia, they were clearly sort of suffering all kinds of sicknesses, their hair falling out and the like. Well, put it all together. Suspiciously young forests, I mean, clearly they're actually blasted by the nuclear shockwave. The year without summer, I mean, that obviously is the consequence of nuclear blast putting up, you know, all, all, all the sort of dust into the air, and essentially it's a, a, a nuclear winter. And what was Charles Artois describing? Clearly a nuclear blast, and the soldiers then suffering from the symptoms of radiation sickness. You know, isn't it obvious? And as for things like the fact that the residual radiation count back in, in, in Moscow region is perfectly normal, well, of course, that's because it's been covered up by scientists. Now, in fairness, Kungurov does suggest that actually there are, are multiple theories. I mean, it could actually have been a meteor, he suggests, you know, like we saw, for example, in Chelyabinsk region in 2013. Um, but rather, he thinks that it was a nuclear blast, and he posits two particular scenarios, one of which this was carried out by some people known as the Great Ancients at the request of Russia. So, yes, no one's actually claiming that 19th century Russia had nuclear weapons, but instead, because, of course, Russia has such a special place in the world and in, in the world's history, the great ancients were willing to, to intervene to ensure that, that, that Napoleon could be nuked, or indeed that they was the result of time travellers who came back precisely to help save Russia from the French. Now, of, of course, this is absolute nonsense, but the point is his hundreds of lectures online have attracted some 29 million views. And look, many of those views, of course, will be people thinking, wow, isn't this lunacy? But they can't all be watching it for the laughs, not least because likes outnumber dislikes by about 10 to 1. And there's also this whole ecosystem of particularly social media channels and websites devoted to following and developing Kungurov's ideas. So that, you know, is, is, is on the one hand absolute nonsense, but it's also nonsense that is rooted not in some, you know, distant land or prehistory, but actually relatively close. Sure, yes, okay, not, not, not in living memory, um, except maybe of the, the reptiloids. But nonetheless, you know, it is clear that actually Russians are willing to entertain some really quite strange, convoluted and complex theories about their own past that you know, really do stand at odds with the observable history. But then again, maybe that observable history is all wrong. You know, is the notion of the nuking of Moscow necessarily that much more bizarre than claiming that centuries of our history are actually totally made up? Because that, after all, is the thesis of the mathematician Anatoly Famenko and his so-called New Chronicle. Now, 
Hmm. Let me see, how do I summarise this? Basically, everything we think happened in the ancient era, you know, Rome, Greece, Egypt and the like, actually happened during the Middle Ages. Because everything before 1600 AD has essentially been invented to suit the interests of the Vatican, the Holy Roman Empire and the Romanovs. And the idea is all of this has been done to hide the fact that the real history of the world was dominated by the Russian horde. Now, what's the Russian horde? It was this kind of vast Slavic Turkic empire, which included and was dominated by the Russians, the Ukrainians and the Belarusians, but also included a whole variety of steppe nomad people. And these people basically dominated Europe until the 17th century. So actually, written hi I mean, written history apparently only started around 800 AD. So I'm sorry, Herodotus. I'm sorry, Tacitus. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, Jesus was actually the Byzantine emperor, Andronicus Komnenos, whom we thought lived in the 12th century. And uh, Jerusalem, Rome and Troy are actually one and the same. And, oh God, look, I lose track. The interesting thing is it's hard to be clear if Famienko was really being serious. And certainly a lot of the people who quote his theories are actually doing so tongue-in-cheek. But not everyone, and not almost. The interesting thing is exactly that you know, this is stuff which obviously is beyond the ability of, of ordinary people to be able to use their own personal experience to test you, know, you can't know yourself whether or not, um, well, again, to pick another one, Suleiman the Magnificent was actually King Solomon. But the interesting thing is that we also see these conspiracy theories emerging when people should and can actually test it. Let me give one last example before we have a break. Back in the very last years of the Soviet Union, when I was in Russia doing my PhD research, on the impact of the Soviet-Afghan war on the Soviet Union. So I was doing quite a lot of work with, with veterans and was quite heavily sort of engaged with the various elements of the veterans movement, including their press, which was often really quite, well, like, like so much of the other tab tabloid press at the time, beginning to become very kind of weird. There was the Moscow newspaper of the Union of Veterans of Afghanistan that, oh, from memory, I think it was called Pabratim. Anyway. And in that, there were stories about the fact that there were giant mutant rats in the sewers of Moscow, and that Afghan veterans were being hired to go into the sewers after them and essentially root them out and kill them with poison gas and Kalashnikov. All good, stirring stuff. Of course, absolute nonsense. But the point is this. It was being written in a Moscow-based newspaper for largely Afghan veterans about what was meant to be happening in Moscow being done by Afghan veterans. One would have thought that that was entirely something that people would have been able to, shall we say, test with their own experiences, with their own friend groups, with their own networks, and known whether or not it was nonsense. And yet there were people who were still talking about it. People who are actually more willing to believe those kind of stories than the, frankly, objective reality. Why was that? 
why are people so willing, so almost eager to believe the exciting story? And this is, I think, a particularly, but not exclusively Russian characteristic, over what would frankly would seem to be common sense. Let's come back to that after the break. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, why believe conspiracy theories? I mean, sometimes, let's be honest, it's because it's a, a common experience, a shared joke, in effect. Like, for example, the story that Lenin was a mushroom. In 1991, there was a Soviet musician, Sergei Kuryokin, and he broadcast an interview in this was then on um, what was then Leningrad TV, where he pretended to be historian, and he claimed that Lenin had eaten so many magic mushrooms that he actually became one, and he did. He presented this elaborate story with all kinds of alleged sources and evidence and the like that although no one really kind of believed him, there was almost this sense of, give him his due, he's done a damn good job of spinning this yarn. And look, particularly, it, it came at the time precisely when, when Russia was, was opening up. This is a period with sort of Gorbachev's glasnost, which was you know, opening up all kinds of new opportunities for debate, less censorship. But in some ways, Russians hadn't yet been so carefully inoculated against satire and absurdism. But nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that on the whole, even people who then sort of recounted this this story did so knowing full well that, that Lenin had not actually become a mushroom. So as I said, it was almost like that kind of sense of, you know, we're all part of one community who understand the joke. But of course, look, there, there's a lot more to it than that. And particularly now, there is this kind of status conspiracy theory that very much serves the interest of the state yet can also end up kind of wagging the dog because once you build this kind of narratives that shapes your your political options you, you can't just you know it's, this is not necessarily like 1984 you cannot pretend that Oceania has never been at war with East Asia or whatever and time and time again there is this sense of conspiracy theories which are there to try and explain what otherwise we could explain as just simply stupidity on the part of the state. Take, for example, Nicholas I. Tsar Nicholas I and his disastrous decision to go to war with Turkey and thus Britain and France, which led to the Crimean War, a war which, after all, Nicholas didn't even survive. And the conspiracy theory that emerged really quite quickly thereafter and very much tried to, to rehabilitate his reputation claimed that he was actually pushed into the war by Europe precisely because they wanted to see an opportunity for Russia to be humbled. But even more so by a fifth column which had infiltrated the Russian leadership 
who again, well, they wanted to weaken the institutions of Tsarism. So what we had was this sense that, in fact, it wasn't Nicholas's fault. He was actually just simply the victim of, of this conspiratorial cabal who had visions of reforming Russia and knew that they had to undermine Nicholas I, who was, after all, a, a very stern conservative of the old school. And at the same time, we actually had the Russian state itself actively trying to spread conspiracy theories abroad. You know, by the end of the 19th century, there was an office within the Akhrana, uh, the Tsarist KGB, which was precisely responsible for getting certain false narratives, false articles published in the foreign press. And this has become vastly more prevalent today. And it, it's not just in how the Kremlin weaponizes conspiracy theories abroad, but it's also within the domestic narrative. And it builds on its very, very fertile Soviet soil, of course, but you know, really comes into its own in the 1980s and the 1990s which is, after all, it's this time when the old order, the old certainties were all falling apart. This was a time of, of anomie and uncertainty, when you know, all the old heroes, all the old truths, all the old ideologies were revealed to be fake, unworthy, fictional or irrelevant. And nothing was there really to take their place, except conspiracy theories. Particularly because Gorbachev's opening up of the archives and willingness to see the blank pages in history filled in again created this understanding that so much had been left unsaid. And therefore people were always wondering, well, what else hasn't been revealed? You know, if, if we're told this now, what else is there? And what filled that, as I said, that were conspiracy theories that tended to essentially let Russians off the hook. In the 1970s and 1980s in particular, there was a, an emigre writer, Grigory Klimov, who claimed that the CIA was running something called the Harvard Project, which was trying to undermine Russia using mind control and genetic manipulation, sounding familiar, to turn the Russians into these degenerate predatory homosexuals. Now, this would in due course become an article of faith by, by say, the, certainly the late 80s, I would say, by many within the Russian far right. And even in that being sort of popularised with and inspired Sergei Norka's Inquisition trilogy, which is set in this dark near future uh, Russia, where sort of an orthodox Inquisition and an authoritarian leader codenamed the Dark Horse battle these insidious plots. The Harvard Project never really, I think, acquired broad attraction, though. Another incarnation that did was the so-called Dulles Plan. This was this belief that the CIA chief, Alan Dulles, in the late 50s, the first civilian head of the CIA, developed this plan for the destruction of the Soviet Union, again, through its cultural base, using a fifth column of artists, writers and more, to spread moral degeneracy, bureaucratism, corruption, violence, depravity, and all that stuff. Um, and he, here's a quote. We shall throw everything we have, all the gold, all the material might and resources, into making the people, the Russian people clearly, into fools and idiots. It is possible to change the human brain, the consciousness of people. After sowing chaos there, we shall imperceptibly replace their values by stealth with false ones. 
and shall force them to believe in these false values. Thus we shall find like-minded people, our own helpers and allies in Russia itself. Episode by episode the tragedy will be played out, grandiose in scale, of the death of the most intractable people on earth, of the definitive, irreversible dying out of its self-consciousness. So in other words, the idea is to hammer into the people's consciousness the cult of sex, violence, sadism and betrayal. In a word, immorality. And this is to be done with the help of our accomplices, helpers and allies in Russia herself. Bureaucratic red tape will be elevated to a virtue. Honesty and orderliness will be ridiculed as being of no use to anyone. An anachronism. Rudeness and insolence, lies and deceit, drunkenness and drug addiction, animal fear of everyone and everything, indecency, betrayal, nationalism and strife between ethnic groups, and above all, hatred for the Russian ethnos. We'll cultivate all of that quietly and skillfully. Well, what a wonderful alibi for all Russia's woes, when everything from corruption and bureaucratism to rudeness and insolence actually can can be blamed on those fiendish Americans. And again, you see, we have this common theme that keeps emerging. All of these bad things are down to the manipulation of foreigners, largely Americans, but they could also be reptiloid aliens, in order to undermine the fact that the Russians are a naturally wonderful people. You have self-affirmation and an alibi all in one. Now, this this notion of the Dulles plan actually had its roots in in. 1971, in a thriller, Anatoly Ivanov's The Eternal Call, where it's actually put forward by one of the villains, uh, an ex-SS officer, of course. But then it gets cited as fact in 1993. I mean, it was actually first published as a distant plan and ascribed to Alan Dulles then in a book by none other than Metropolitan Ivan of St. Petersburg and Ladoga. So, you know, again, by that point, it suddenly made that jump. And by that point, you know, it, it, it now starts to become referenced quite frequently by Russian writers, politicians and pundits as fact, not fiction. Because after all, you know, it does so well play to the Putin's re- regime's wider notion that firstly, there are always deeper truths and conspiratorial politics and that Russia is constantly at risk. And we see this in so many other ways. I mean, I've raised this in previous podcasts, but the one that always gets to me is this notion that the Russians know that there is a long-term plan which spans different presidencies to dismantle the Russian Federation in order to get its its assets. And this is something that we've, we've had, particularly Nikolai Patrushev, the hawkish secretary of the Security Council, um, you know, actually, again, cite in multiple interviews as fact. And where did this come from? Where did this fact come from? Former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's dreams. It goes back to the end of 2006, when Rasiska Gazeta, government newspaper, publishes this interview with a former general of the, the Russian Federal Guard Service, the FSO, part of the sort of overall intelligence apparatus, Boris Ratnikov, um, in which he claimed that this was fact, and digging in, it was fact because a Russian psychic had actually read Madeleine Albright's dreams. 
So, you know, we, we, we have this already sort of being kind of read into the record from a key, well, not key, but a, a significant figure within the FSO, the Federal Protection Service, Federal Guard Service, and it starts to crop up in official narratives and, you know, even in Putin's own statements. Now, of course, the use of conspiracy theories has been turbocharged by the need to legitimise an increasingly authoritarian and rapacious regime by trying to juxtapose it with an even more unpalatable West. So, you know, for example, this February we had Putin claiming that in the West, even paedophilia is announced as a normal thing. Well, obviously it's not. More generally, Putin and Patrushev, and as well as others, have, have talked about the so-called golden billion theory, whereby a cabal of global elites are supposedly behind this conspiracy to enrich and elevate the world's richest billion people, which, you know, needless to say, are essentially in the West, at the expense of the rest of the world. And you know, this is a theory which plays, not surprisingly, often quite well in the global South. Where did this idea come from? A 1990 book, The Plot of World Government, Russia and the Golden Billion, by one Anatoly Tsikhunov, which was then popularised by a Russian writer, Sergei Karamurza, only it's worth mentioning a very, very distant relative of the valiant Vladimir Karamurza, the liberal opposition figure currently languishing in a Russian prison. But again, you know, from that, theory suddenly gets written into the record. Because these are all very useful. And they help make Putin into a hero, frankly, of the more lunatic fringe in the West, such as the kind of QAnon folk. But they also reflect precisely how Putin and many other Russians within the elite actually see the world. I remember once, well, the only time I managed to talk to someone who had actually taken part in briefing Putin. And what came very clear from what he was saying is that Putin himself certainly harbours this notion that there's always come some kind of deeper truth, that one cannot ever take things at face value. Now look, often you can't take things at face value, but equally often what you see is indeed what you get. But the point is, Putin seems to be apparently unwilling to accept that. Everything has a deeper meaning. I mean, and we've seen this, obviously, with, for example, the way that, you know, I've mentioned in the past how sometimes something that I happen to write, my own personal opinion, gets framed within the Russian press as somehow that I am acting as a mouthpiece, that I have been instructed by Whitehall what to say, and it's part of signalling or testing the waters. We, we, we find that a lot. This, this sense that everything has relevance, that if I don't know, if some local paper in Manchester publishes a letter on its letter page by someone saying, aren't we spending too much on Ukraine when we have poor people at home? Instead of that just simply being some guy writing to a newspaper, that can be reframed as London is clearly testing the waters with its own public as to whether or not they would be happy with the reduction of aid to Ukraine or something like that. You know, there's always this sense, you know, we, we, we have this notion of Kremlinology, this sense of trying to read between the lines about what's going on within the, the if I can mix my metaphors, the black box of, of Russian leadership politics. We sometimes forget the degree to which the Kremlin practices a, a, a bizarre and twisted form of Westernology in which they insist on reading between the lines rather than reading what are on the damn lines. So anyway, so on, on one level, you might say conspiracy theory underlies state policy in Russia because that is how Putin and the people around him think. They think that it's all about that. That They, they assume, therefore, 
that the West is that much more coordinated, that there can be some kind of secret grand plan that is, is held to across multiple American presidencies as well as other different changes in um, government in the West and that can be kept secret. So there's a degree of coordination, capacity and intent that is below, beneath and behind the apparent responses of the West. This also, I think, reflects the way Putin himself thinks. You know, If one looks at his now infamous ahistorical paper about the historical relationship between Russians and Ukrainians. Again, I mean, a lot of it, in other circumstances, we would regard as just simply the ramblings of some conspiracy theory nut. The way he tries to distort and shoehorn history into a shape of his convenience and making and assumes that any alternative is not just simply the result of genuine disagreement on the facts and the interpretations, but part of some kind of plot against Russia. So, you know, th this is why I think the state is so into conspiracy theories, not just because they're useful instruments, but because they reflect how it actually thinks. But what about ordinary people, ordinary Russians? I think it's a whole mix of reasons here, and I think this is often, I think, best illustrated by example. Let, let me give one, one more example of a sort of a rather kind of bizarre notion. The Union of Slavic Forces of Russia. Now, this is uh, an informal community that began in, I think, 2010 and believes, or at least affects to believe, that the Soviet Union never really went away. And look, just like this, this American sovereign citizens movement that draws on this kind of bizarre mix of, of pseudo-legalism, conspiracy theory, and just downright bloody-mindedness to claim that it's not subject to any government laws unless the individual consents to them. Well, in a similar way, the Union of Slavic Forces of Russia claims not to recognize the Russian Federation and its laws, based on an even weirder mix of conspiracy theory, anti-Semitism, and neo-paganism. I mean, no surprise that the FSB monitors them carefully and that in 2022, the, the Justice Ministry added it to the list of extremist organisations. Now, its founder, who's a, a failed dentist called Sergei Taraskin, though he does also go by the understated titles of uh, Fire God Taraskin, or the one that I prefer, Owner of the Universe, Anyway, he claimed that he's a citizen of the USSR, a descendant of subjects of the Russian Empire, Tsardom of Russia, and other pre-existing subjects of law in our country, Russia. Brackets, Rus, Tartaria, Boria, Scythia, and so on. Close brackets. A descendant of the noble breed of Slavs, who is covered by the mantle of Alexander Filipovich, Tsar of Macedon, sovereign of the monarchy. Oh, oh, yes, actually, and he also declared himself interim president of the USSR and emperor and commander-in-chief of the Russian Empire all at once. I mean, now th that is quite impressive multitasking. Now, look, on one level, one could think of this as more of an issue of mental health than conspiracy theories as such. But the point is, you know, whatever is going on with Taraskin, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if we're talking about actually a, a cunning chancer rather than a lunatic, um, According to the FSB, back in 2018, there were 150,000 followers of this Union of Slavic Forces of Russia. And for some, it's just a harmless bit of, I don't know, emotional cosplay. 
expressing nostalgia for a nation that they've lost. For others, frankly, it's a scam, something they use to try and leverage to get out of paying a fine or utility bills. But others genuinely peddle all kinds of evolved and often inspired conspiracy theories about the end of the USSR, you know, the unconstitutionality of the decision to wind it up, the fact that Gorbachev had been replaced by a double, or in one case, by a robot, um, you know, all of these things, t- to give the whole notion some kind of legitimacy and pedigree. So what is it? What is it about, again, not uniquely, I don't, I don't want to make this sort of sound, sound too Russophobic, but what is it about the Russian culture that actually leaves them so, not just vulnerable to conspiracy theories, but actually almost eagerly seeking them? And if you go to Russian bookshops, oh, those are the days, um, you know, you can see shelf after shelf of what are presented as historical or contemporary political analyses, but which, to a large extent, we, we would regard as just one step down from why aliens built the pyramids type books. Well, one of them is, of course, that conspiracy theories provide a, a nice exp- explanation for the troubles in which you find yourself. And we've got to realise that for most Russians... Much of their history, much of their life history, has been lived in in pretty troubled and uncertain times. But also times in which there is a distinct lack of transparency about what's really going on. You know, you have regimes that lie to them, that censor the reality, whether it's direct censorship like in Soviet times or the indirect censorship when essentially the state controls all the media and everyone has to stick to the line that is presented by the presidential administration. A lack of transparency. If you know that your histories have been rewritten for political purpose, there is all the more ease in adding whatever other bits of history you you would like or or believe should be there. If you can't trust your history books, how can you trust the history that they contain? There's also, I would say, something much, much deeper, which is in some ways that this is a culture which still, I think, has has much more of, of the mystical about it. And I'm not talking about feng shui and, and sort of meditating or whatever. I'm talking about this notion that there is, there is noumena. In other words, that there, there is much more about the world that is imbued with spirit and soul and deeper... Um, spiritual meaning than we would we would have i mean even if you look in, in in russian orthodoxy compared with other forms of christianity there's a much stronger notion that it's possible to experience the divine on earth as well as still i think a much deeper penetration of paganism within faith so you know th- there is already this 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 slight i would say disposition to assume that things are not just as they seem beyond that Conspiracy theories are actually often a response to trauma, individual or, or social trauma. Again, ways of explaining what otherwise seems inexplicable and yet which you cannot accept is just stuff happening. You have to have some greater meaning to understand what's happened to you. And in this case, you know, we should note that, again, I would say it's fair to say that Russians have routinely experienced traumas in a way that so many, for example, North American or, or, or European, Western European peoples have, have not. You know, whether we're talking, again, just, just think of the, the past century and a bit. What have Russians been through? You know, the, the, the cataclysm of World War I, which was 
truly cataclysmic in Russia. Then, to, you know, collapse of Tsarism, Bolshevik seizure of power, a bloody internecine civil war. Then, shortly thereafter, really, we, we had, you know, Stalinism, the gulags, the great purges, the constant reinventions of who's, who's a, a, a good Marxist-Leninist Stalinist and who actually is a running dog um, agent of, of, of capitalism. The Second World War, a bit more Stalinism. Then the attempt to unpick and de-Stalinize, which, of course, actually ca carries with it that other trauma that says, you know, all those things you did to survive under Stalinism. All those ways in which you, you had to, you know, sign the common denunciations or whatever. Well, you know, that was deeply immoral and that was actually to no purpose whatsoever. So you compromise yourself for no reason other than just simply sheer survival. Then a period of increasing cynicism and decay, the combined excitements and immiserations of Gorbachev, the chaos of the 1990s, and then Putin. I mean, in, in this context, you know, is this not a traumatized society? Is this not one that would naturally try to find some meaning in what otherwise just seems to be a, a cavalcade of catastrophe? So, yes, we can look at the Russian propensity to use conspiracy theory as a weapon abroad, as a piece of you know, cynical information operation, which it is, but it also reflects the degree to which they themselves are vulnerable to all kinds of conspiracy theories writ large at home. And that's not because Russians are intrinsically more credulous. In some ways, quite the opposite. It's precisely because they have been kind of come accustomed to disbelieve what they're told by successive lying regimes that they will almost over-question question more was after all the uh, you know, slogan of of the rt russia today tv channel well that also reflects russians own experiences it's not because russians are intrinsically any more stupid than anyone else again in some ways actually one could say that these conspiracy theories demonstrate quite considerable imagination and, and intelligence as much as anything else it is rather that it is a reflection of the continuing i would suggest political and cultural trauma in which Russians find themselves. In this respect, it is a, a desperate attempt to try and understand a world which otherwise seems beyond comprehension. And that's what, after all, this, this podcast is about. So maybe I too have become afflicted by that as well. So on that note, let me end. And for those of you listening before the 25th, let me wish you a, a very, very happy non-Orthodox Christmas for those who observe it. And for those who don't, well, you can have a happy 25th of December too. Speak to you later. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>